Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the next American Civil War, which many in Trump world believe is both coming, necessary, and inevitable, and how, to Trump believers, the January 6th insurrection was an act of faith, with Ashley Babbitt, with Ashley Babbitt emerging as a martyr while whiteness is not only about race, but is a spiritual state. We will discuss how January the 6th was only the beginning of what is brewing in our deeply polarized and divided country, inside a world that our next guest explored in his travels into red state America within the blue state of California. Joining us is Jeff Charlotte, a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and best-selling author or editor of seven books, including C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, as well as The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series. The winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting, the Molly Ivins Prize, and the Outspoken Award, among other honors, he is a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and we will discuss his latest article at Vanity Fair, January the 6th was only the beginning. Then we'll examine the need for the Democrats to pay attention to state legislature races since the Republicans control over 60% of state legislatures and the Supreme Court is looking into changing federal election laws to make it possible for Republican state legislatures to gerrymander and suppress votes without the ability of courts to intervene. Joining us to discuss this critical battleground that the Republicans dominate while the Democrats focus on presidential and congressional contests, is Gabby Goldstein, the co-founder and senior vice president for strategic initiatives at Sister District, whose mission is to build progressive power in state legislatures. And we will discuss her article at Salon, Progressives, Take the Fight to the States Right Now. It's the Only Way to Win. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jeff Charlotte, a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and a best-selling author or editor of seven books, including C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, as well as The Family, The Secret, Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, the winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting, the Molly Ivins Prize, and the Outspoken Award, among other honors. He's the professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and his latest article at Vanity Fair is, January the 6th was only the beginning. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Charlotte. Hi, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And your Vanity Fair article really does explore the great divide. And it is both frightening and depressing in a way that how 
we are so divided. And I mean, I think you could make the case that we're living in a country where liberty is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. We saw that at the July the 4th parade just outside of Chicago where people were gunned down. But the people that you've profiled and spent time with and wrote about, they see liberty and freedom in a, in a completely different way, that we're not, we're not being oppressed by too many guns, but we're, we need guns because we are oppressed. It's just so stark. It, it is indeed a gun culture um, uh, central to the, the story that, that I tell um, is a church in Yuba City, California, uh, called the Church of Glad Tidings, which is a sort of a, a, a mini mega church, uh, not super huge, but big. Um, and listeners may have heard of it because it sort of made national news a little while ago when General Michael Flynn visited and they presented him a custom made AR-15 rifle at the altar which they uh, about which he joked, he says, maybe I'll go find somebody in Washington. That's not the only gun in that church. That church, in fact, you sit there in the pews and the audience and, um, you know, they give the announcements before the service. And, you know, Tuesday's women's group night and uh, there's a little kids group and so on. And then there's weekly militia training um, at a church. And the militia training is very explicitly in preparation for the war they are divided in their number only in believing is coming or has already begun, but they they embrace the concept of civil war. But what are they afraid of? Uh, they would frame it as that they are not afraid of anything. Um, which but is why are they so heavily armed, Jeff? I mean, isn't that a? Don't you normally uh, have have arms to protect yourself or defend yourself because you feel threatened? Well, right. They would say they're not afraid of anything because they're exuberant. They feel like they uh, they were despondent after January 6th because, as the pastor said, you know, we took the castle and then essentially everything melted into air. Um, they weren't able to hold it. But uh, now that the service I attended, uh, they had a guest speaker, a guy most of your listeners probably never heard of, a guy named David Strait. Uh, uh, who is uh, kind of a big deal in something called the sovereign citizen movement. Um, this is the idea that uh, citizens, that, that, that federal authority has no power over uh, private citizens, which say, if it sounds crackpot, a recent survey of uh, county sheriffs around the United States found that 40% of sheriffs actually subscribe to some version of this idea. Um, and Dave Strait came and he, he brought them what they interpret as good news. He said, in fact, uh, the fight's already happening. We are winning now. Don't worry. Biden's not really president. Trump is secretly president. Hillary Clinton uh, has already been executed. Um, and the crowd cheered. And he said, and if you've, you've seen her on TV since, don't worry. That's just fake news. That's green screens. They're building one, new Guantanamos for journalists. The crowd love this. Now, if this sounds so outlandish that it just seems aberrational, uh, I should say I've I drove across the, the excerpt in Vanity Fair is just a, a part of something, a, a new book I have called The Undertow. I drove across the entire United States. That was last summer. I'm doing the same now. Um, and I find these views and variations of them everywhere. That wasn't the only militia church I attended. Um, uh, these ideas are becoming more and more widespread and mainstream, detached from the reality you and I inhabit, 
but uh, uh, summoning a a much more frightening possibility. So it's really extraordinary to think that so many Americans, and particularly the ones that you profile, Jeff Charlotte, really believe that government equals tyranny. But I, on the other hand, <laughs> I'm assuming I live in the normal world, not necessarily team normal, but <laughs> the, the normal world. And it would seem to me that our government is becoming a tyranny of the minority via the Supreme Court making unpopular uh, rulings and deconstructing the administrative state, which will, and then if they take up this case that they took up the, on their last day in the next session, they could basically change the way elections are done in this country, ensuring a one-party state. And, of course, a lot of conservative Republicans went to Hungary, where the dictator there, Orban, is their model for a kind of dictatorship with a democratic patina. So, again, it's, it's just so extraordinary to think that we are in a country where the definitions of liberty, the definitions of reality, are so bifurcated. Is there any possible way to bridge this, this gap? No, I, I don't think there is. And I think that's one of the... Um, I, I don't think that means civil war is inevitable. That was the question I sort of asked as I've been driving around, is I, I wanted to know what did people think of this possibility that seemed unimaginable to me at least 10 years ago. Um, and everywhere, people were either of two minds that it, they thought civil war is coming, and they um, some of them were sad about that, some of them were excited about it, um, and some of them thought it had already started. And I think the idea that so many liberals and uh, leftists and secular folks have, which is that there's some kind of key that we can turn that can unlock our reality for these other folks. There's some way we can find to explain to them uh, uh, our perspective that will make them embrace it. I find that actually almost as delusional as the ideas of folks who think Hillary Clinton has already been executed. It's delusional in the sense that it's not taking seriously what's happening. It's not taking seriously the hatreds of many of these folks. It's not taking seriously fascism. Fascism isn't an oops. Fascism is a choice. These people have chosen it. They understand that they have chosen it. They've embraced it. Um, and so how we move beyond this, I'm not sure, but I don't think, um, I don't think we're going to find the magic argument that makes everybody stand down. And again, I'm speaking with Jeff Charlotte, who's a contributing editor for Vanity Fair and a best-selling author and editor of seven books, including C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, as well as The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series. He's the winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting, the Molly Ivins Prize, and the Outspoken Award, among other honors, and is a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. And his latest article at Vanity Fair is January 6th was only the beginning. So we are, as you point out, I think we're not heading into fascism, but there's a considerable part of the country that seems to be comfortable with it. And that would be represented by the Trump world, because essentially he tried a fascist coup on January the 6th, and ever since then has uh, peeled off 
I don't know what percentage of the country. Do we know exactly how many people live in Trump world and live in the world that you explored in your article that we're discussing here, Jeff Charlotte? I mean, I think those numbers are are can be misleading. So we know that he still has sort of, you know, uh, between 30 and 40 percent hardcore support, um, which is certainly enough uh, to take back government. Um, uh, but how many people live in Trump world? Well, that's a different number, right? Do we describe if uh, I've been uh, right now writing about the state of Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin is a blue state, Democratic governor, extreme right wing state legislature. And uh, uh, as of, you know, post Roe, uh, abortion is now illegal in the state. They reverted to an 1849 law, um, uh, no exceptions for rape or incest. Um, are they living in Trump world? Um, even with their Democratic governor, uh, arguably, in many ways, yes. And I think that's where those we understand the reality of growing fascism in America, not by counting heads, um, but by looking at spheres of control. Um, and, and it can be in surprising places. Like, as I say in the story, you know, I start in Sacramento and then go to Yuba City and in California. And these uh, in Sacramento, I began uh, at a, a rally for Ashley Babbitt the woman who was the insurrectionist killed on January 6th by a Capitol Police officer. Uh, and the Proud Boys had showed up, um, as well as uh, a group of Antifa pro protesters. And they brawled in the streets and the police looked on, except when Antifa uh, threw a punch and then the police would charge. That's Sacramento, a blue city in a blue state. Is it Trump world? Uh, maybe. Maybe I think it's 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 those those fears are are getting uh, more diffuse at the edges. But Jeff, were, were you able to understand the attraction to this man? Because I think you could make the case that you'd have to scour America to find a human being worse than Donald Trump. I mean, he's been a disastrous, incompetent, corrupt uh, president and a very destructive one. And he's still dividing the country. And we don't know the extent to which his, his relationship with Vladimir Putin makes him a tool of what Putin's main arm, aim with America is to divide it and turn Americans against each other. So we're obliging a malign foreign power. But that I don't think that that argument would get very far, neither would any argument. And you point out that you as a member of the press were treated with a great deal of hostility covering these uh, events that you've described in your Vanity Fair article. So I guess the question would be, do these people, have they invented a Donald Trump? Or is it because the their hostility to the mainstream media and, and liberals and Democrats is so intense that anything that the mainstream media or the Democrats say about Trump, that therefore drives them into his arms unquestioningly. What is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I would say that uh, I think every president is an invention, right? You know, when we look at Donald Trump, 
or Barack Obama, it's very hard for us to take the measure of the person. And our political system is not actually asking us to. It's asking us to sort of uh, understand this figure as a as a metaphor for one idea of how uh, our world might be. And I think um, part of what I wanted to do in the story was I mentioned this woman, Ashley Babbitt, this 34-year-old woman from um, Southern California uh, who traveled to Washington on January 6th and was killed as she was trying to climb through a window within the Capitol. She was shot. Um, She had voted for Obama twice, um, not been a terribly political person, but then on Halloween in 2016, she logged onto Twitter for the first time and wrote Donald Trump and hashtag love. Um, and she just fell so hard for Donald Trump. And so I wanted to understand a little bit of her journey, what brings this this person um, uh, from one place to this precipice, very literally. Still, uh, she was perched on a windowsill when she was shot and killed. Um, and, uh, you know, I think so many of the usual suspects appear. Uh, she got into QAnon. Um, she had a business that suffered a lot during um, uh, COVID, and that uh, um, turned her against government as well. She was very, became an anti-maxer, masker. Um, she ran her business. She made some mistakes and ended up with an incredibly usurious loan um, and a court judgment against her. She blamed all these things. She looked for understanding and and she found it in Donald Trump who promised her uh, these really simple solutions. She lived very close to the Mexican border. He told her that the problem was um, uh, that very border and people coming over and she started to believe this. And it becomes a kind of a feedback loop because once you get into that, you find more and more confirmation of these deluded ideas. Um, and it, it brings them into this world in which Trump is a truth teller, uh, a truth teller amongst liars. Um, but you know, part of what I wanted to say in this story too, and I, I do think I think it's very likely Trump will return. I think odds are pretty good. Uh, he'll he'll be back in 24. Um, but uh, I was interested in the sort of post January 6 world. Um, this is Trumpism without Trump. It is bigger than Trump. Um, uh, and the people I spoke to, they love Trump, um, but they were going forward on the fascist project with or without him. Well, indeed, at the Saviors of the Liberty rally uh, in Sacramento that you describe, and a lot of them were open neo-Nazis, were they not? One had a SS tattoo, etc. He said, a white cop's nine-minute knee on a black man's neck, somebody's doing their job. A black cop split second shot at a white woman leading a mob assassination. So there's the the belief system, right? That it, it was okay to kill George Floyd, but uh, shooting Ashley Babbitt has turned her into a martyr. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 so much in in, in that little uh, moment there. Um, I should say that the officer who killed Ashley Babbitt was a. Uh, uh, a plainclothes lieutenant, uh, a black man named Michael Byrd. And that's actually sort of what prompted the story. As soon as I saw that, and I saw that in the right-wing online sphere, they were going to turn this into a very old and, and horrible story in American life, which is innocent white womanhood under threat 
by a black man. This is the lynching story of American life. But I should say that that little uh, that statement is coming from um, a speaker uh, at the rally who was also uh, an indicted January 6th insurrectionist named George Riley, who uh, describes himself as a um, French Canadian Iroquois Jew. He's a, a Native American Jew. He then adds for Jesus um, because he's converted to Christianity. Um, and and yet he's embracing this idea of white supremacy. And I think one of the things that I learned on this trip um, was that the sort of the American innovation of fascism, which is uh, fundamentally white supremacist, was to find a way in which uh, non-white people um, uh, can be seduced by this promise of whiteness and, and drawn into it. So at that rally, for instance, uh, many of the folks I met were, were Latinx and wanted it understood that their movement is much more diverse than a lot of uh, liberals think it is. And that's true. It is. It is. It's also fundamentally white supremacist. Both things are true at the same time. That's the American innovation on fascism, which is sort of uh, decoupling it from a strictly uh, racial purist project in service of a larger white supremacist project. Again, we continue the conversation with Jeff Charlotte, contributing editor for Vanity Fair and a best-selling author or editor of seven books, including C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy, as well as The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series and the winner of the National the winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting, the Molly Ivins Prize, and the Outspoken Award, among other honors. He's a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and his latest article at Vanity Fair is January the 6th was only the beginning. So we can't close the divide, and, and you mentioned uh, the multiracial nature of Trump world and, the, and these right-wing militias and those that are talking about the inevitability of a civil war. Enrique Tarrio, the leader of the Proud Boys, is a dark-skinned um, Cuban. So what's the transgression then from the world of Ashley Babbitt, joined the Air Force at 17, had a, was married to a guy who seemed quite normal and didn't understand her love affair with Trump, and that kind of profile... And then you got, the, on the other hand, you got the the sort of more, you know, redneck, a tattooed Nazi type element as well. So how do those, how do they cohabit? Or what's the mix there between the kind of suburbanites who get radicalized and the people that have always been out there on the fringes of the far right? You know, I mean, I think... Uh... I would sort of pause at that 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 term redneck and think it's probably uh, the the particular guy that we describe him with the SS tattoos, a man named Victor Knight, um, who uh, is uh, with his wife Chelsea. Uh, his, uh, his wife Chelsea is just a, an, one of the organizers of Placer County for Trump, um, uh, big sort of suburban Californian county. Um, uh, the I. I I don't think redneck is the term. Um, I think the radicalization is so much more widespread um, than than that. I think the Yuba City Church is a kind of rural church. Uh, later in the story, in the book, The Undertow, 
uh, I attend uh, another militia church in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha is a city. Uh, the church was probably about 30% black. And if anything, it was more extreme, further, much further to the right. Um, uh, they were convinced that all media was demonic um, and asked me to leave. Uh, armed men came out and said, you've got to leave. Um, and uh, so I think that radicalization uh, uh, and apocalypticism uh, just sort of runs runs so much more broadly. And, and I don't think that we can look at it. I, it's, it's the terrible mistake, I think, of the American left is to dismiss it as, 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 as rednecks or hillbillies or hayseeds or this sort of country fringe. Um, as we're talking right now, I've been uh, thinking about a family I just met in Wisconsin from suburban Eau Claire, wonderful, nice, looking young family until you get start talking to them about their beliefs, their armory, they have 35 guns, they're ready for civil war. Um, they are very excited about the overturning of Roe. Um, they uh, would like to see abortion providers uh, executed. Um, this well, is not- I feel right. that the University of Chicago did, did uh, an, uh, some really uh, good analysis of the people who did storm the Capitol on January the 6th. And that supports exactly what you said. Even though we saw some some sort of tattooed characters and the guy with the horns and all that stuff, they were the, in a way, the minority of people. They were more like the people that you just uh, described. With so let's sort of try and focus then, Jeff Charlotte, on the face of not just the face of American fascism, but what motivates it if it's not racist like the Nazis and targeting the Jews, etc. Oh, it's racist. It, I don't want to say it's not racist. It's a white supremacist project. Mm -hmm. um, one that does not exclude non-white people. It, I see. Uh, um, it, you know, that's why we have leaders like Ali Alexander and uh, Enrique Terrio and um, uh, in Sacramento, George Riley, uh, Native American man and, and uh, you know, throughout militia churches that are, are quite diverse and so on. Um, it, it is absolutely racist. And wherever you go, you'll find um, the fear of so-called critical race theory. And you'll find anger over uh, George Floyd, not that he was killed, but that people were allowed to demonstrate over it. Um, uh, you'll find the Blue Lives Matter flag, the American flag um, drained of color, but for one blue stripe down the middle, um, created, it's it, the man who made it, told me, as a rebuttal to Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, you'll find uh, uh, police officers of color flying that flag. Um, uh, it's not to say it's not racist, but that racism is, is uh, the racism of this movement is, is more complicated than Klansmen in robes. Well, you, you're naturally drawn to historical analogies with the Nazis. So where's the kind of historical grudge that, that motivated the ordinary Germans to join the Nazi party, the, feel, the feeling that the country had been mistreated? Who are the scapegoats in the American version of fascism? Uh, I mean, the scapegoats are many for some, uh, uh, you know, and, and it's, I think one of the important things to recognize is it's constantly mutating. It's constantly changing. Right now, the target of the right is trans kids. 
um, and they're focusing tremendous energy on that. So we've got Proud Boys who are focusing on that, who didn't give it a thought two years ago, right? Um, uh, two years ago, they were talking about a migrant caravan uh, of uh, undocumented peoples. Um, that was the great enemy. And if we go back a few more years, they were talking about Muslims, um, uh, the Muslim ban. That was the enemy. The point is not any specific enemy. It's to have an enemy. The enemy can mutate and change, and that's what makes the, the movement fluid and flexible. For Ashley Babbitt, this formerly democratic kind of kind of like beach hippie her her thing was uh, the shaka she liked to fly the shaka sign you know with a pinky out and thumb out she was a very laid back person her favorite movie was the big lebowski she doesn't fit this profile but for her she became really radicalized by the QAnon conspiracy theory that 800,000 children are being uh, kidnapped and taken away a year this is not true uh, if it was you would notice every school in America would be losing kids on a regular basis. Um, uh, but so for her, uh, the enemy became this kind of amorphous child stealer. Now, a lot of these stories are partaking of uh, old anti-Semitism, uh, the blood libel, the idea that uh, Jews make, this is an old anti-Semitic myth that um, the Jews make matzah out of the blood of Christian children. And, and makes no sense, but people believe this. That's being recycled. And many people don't know uh, that it comes from that. I just recently interviewed a man in Wisconsin who uh, was talking about globalist banker conspiracies and child stealing and so on. And so I just asked him, you know, I wanted to know if he was anti-Semitic and he was absolutely puzzled. He said, what do, what do Jews have anything to do with this? <laughs> he, was, he was pretty much reciting the classic anti-Semitic text, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right. Well, but just in the last minute, though, Jeff, we've run out of time. I just wanted to get a sense, just in closing here, of the idea that they've that the people in your profile are either wanting a civil war or expecting a civil war. So is there a sense then, since it's irreconcilable, the country is, is hopelessly divided, and there's no way in post-truth America through rational discourse and reason to bridge the gap. So therefore, do these people want, so they can't live with the rest of us, do they want to purge us? Uh, some do. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize, they don't think that they can't live with the rest of us. They think they are the majority. Um, they think it's us who can't. But what do they want us to do? Go away, disappear? convert or die well i thank you for joining us uh, jeff charlotte uh, your work is invaluable and you're very brave and i appreciate what you do thanks ian and again i've been speaking with jeff charlotte who's a contributing editor for vanity fair and a best-selling author or editor of seven books including c street the fundamentalist threat to american democracy as well as the family the secret fundamentalism at the heart of american power adapted into a netflix documentary series the winner of the National Magazine Award for Reporting, the Molly Ivins Prize, and the Outspoken Award, among other honours. He's a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and his latest article at Vanity Fair is, January the 6th was only the beginning.
We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the need for the Democrats to pay attention to state legislature races since the Republicans control over 60% of state legislatures. Our values are under attack now And the bad guys get the benefits The rest of us pay their way Patriots are under attack Just for having their say While I'm riding down Freedom Road Agents on my tail You wave a flag on Christmas Day They'll throw you in jail Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gabby Goldstein, who is a co-founder and senior vice president for strategic initiatives at Sister District, whose mission is to build progressive power in state legislatures. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gabby Goldstein. Thank you so much, Ian. A pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And obviously, in in particularly in democratic politics uh, here in the state of California, otherwise known as the Democratic ATM, um, <laughs> where a lot of uh, fundraising goes on, particularly here in, in Hollywood and uh, Beverly Hills and, and the western part of Los Angeles, the focus is normally on the presidential candidate, almost like it's a casting for a movie. So there's not a lot of focus amongst democratic fundraising on state legislatures, and I take it that's what you're interested in and what you're working towards, because at this point, Republicans control 60% of state legislatures, do they not? That's absolutely right. And, you know, thank you for mentioning the routine overinvestment that Democrats make in federal elections. And it's even worse than that. There's a tremendous overinvestment in unwinnable federal elections. Um, So I actually just published this morning an analysis in Salon uh, that mentions that I, I took a look at the FEC filings just for the first quarter of 2022 and Democrats running in non-competitive Senate races, non-competitive, had raised almost $120 million for their races just by the end of Q1 this year. And just as a piece of perspective, in 2020, Democrats were just four seats shy of flipping the state legislature in Arizona. They raised less than $10 million collectively. And then, of course, this year, Arizona's Republicans passed an abortion ban and, and so many other regressive policies. So absolutely, there's a tr- there, there is a long and profound overinvestment in not just federal elections, but unwinnable federal elections on the, the Democratic side. And that's exactly right. We need to turn that around. We need to, to shift our gaze from, from the federal level down to state legislatures, because that's really where the rubber hits the road on so many issues um, that impact our lives. Uh, you know, and, and uh, certainly we could talk about the Dobbs case, several other cases uh, coming out of the Supreme Court this term that also expand the role of states and state legislatures and really carve back uh, federal jurisdiction and, and authority over so many issues, including ch- climate change, abortion, we could we could go on. Um, so that's exactly right. We we need to collectively shift our gaze down the ballot and uh, and put not just our money, but our uh, our attention, our volunteering time, uh, our, the way that we talk about politics needs to include state level policies and and candidates and electeds. So Sister District, your organization, its mission is to build progressive 
power in state legislatures. How are you going about that? Yeah, so you know the the idea for this organization. Uh, I always we always say that we're like like good millennials. We we all met on social media, my co-founders and and uh, and I. And really, the I you know when we started canvassing the landscape, we saw such a gap in organizing capacity, in resources going to Democrats running for state legislature. So the idea was, what if we were able to harness the energy and the resources from folks in one place, particularly blue places, we all lived in the Bay Area of California, and direct those resources and those volunteers towards strategic, winnable state legislative races somewhere else where we could make a big difference. So the name Sister District is kind of a a nod to the idea of a sister city, but with districts. So that idea went a bit viral as things uh, sometimes do. And uh, we've grown now to over 60,000 volunteers across the country, organized into local teams, about 150 active teams. And each year we choose a set of strategic state legislative races. Um, uh, Happy to talk about the political strategy. Uh, And then we sister up our teams of volunteers to those candidates for field and fundraising support. And um, in addition to the electoral work we do, we also have programming for progressive state legislators. Uh, We also have civic engagement programming to raise the profile of state legislatures and state politics for, for the public. So we're talking about state legislatures and on its final day of this term of this uh, Supreme Court last Thursday, they announced that they're taking up a case which is entirely about state legislatures, Moore versus Harper, a North Carolina case. And this got a lot of people alarmed. And uh, the Washington Post uh, has an editorial last Tuesday that the Supreme Court's next move might cripple our democracy Let me just quote a little bit from uh, the editorial in the Washington Post. Our democracy's paths rest mostly with the Supreme Court. If five justices overturn the North Carolina decision, they will know what they are doing, which is writing a recipe for election tampering. They will know why they are doing it, not because the Constitution demands it, but because they can. So this is the the fear that this ultra-conservative majority on the Supreme Court are in fact right-wing political activists in robes and this could be their next move. So tell us what you understand about this legal theory which is considered fairly bogus, uh, the independent state legislature theory. Yeah, you know, this is something that I've been writing about since last September. Um, Dave Daly and I had uh, a commentary um, last September 2021 about the independent state legislature theory and, uh, you know, forecasting that this issue would arise and uh, certainly would arise before the 24 election. Um, And here we are. So uh, at the time that we published that commentary, uh, there was not much if you searched for the term, um, the, but 
very, very glad that uh, the public and certainly um, the legal community has uh, taken this very seriously and is really engaging in the threat that this poses. So essentially, this is, as you correctly stated, uh, a theory that has been derided by legal scholars, um, uh, you know, as bogus, as made up, as, you know, utterly ahistorical. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a, a theory um, that holds that state legislatures and only state legislatures can set the rules around federal elections. So this comes from, a, you know, an ahistorical reading of the election clause and the electors clause in the Constitution, which do mention legislatures, uh, state legislatures, um, uh, you know, in in sort of in in the, the language of those clauses. Um, you know, I think that uh, that, as you know, as we've said, has has really that is not the sort of historical understanding of what those clauses mean, right? Um, you know, legislate the the word legislature in the elections clause is really shorthand for a lawmaking process that would you know be governed by the state constitution. It, it doesn't literally mean the state legislature. At least that's not how it's been understood uh, uh, for literally hundreds of years. Um, Nonetheless, uh, this case, the Moore case, um, is you know is arguing that very strong, uh, you know what the what the the North Carolina Republican legislate legislators who are bringing this case call quote the plain text of the Constitution vesting this sole authority in the legislature of the state, um, and that's how we ended up here. So. Uh, what happened in North Carolina is, uh, you know, that, of course, the Republicans control the state legislature in North Carolina. Um, and while there is a Democratic governor in North Carolina, the governor does not have the authority to veto redistricting maps. So there's no gubernatorial veto in North Carolina. So the Republican legislature drew a terribly gerrymandered congressional map. Uh, which would have guaranteed them at least 10, if not 11, of the state's 14 congressional seats. That's a pretty serious gerrymander. And it was a partisan gerrymander. Um, and essentially, you know, the North Carolina Supreme Court said, no, that map violates the state constitution. And and the, the state Supreme Court ordered a redraw. The Republican leaders in, in the state legislature were very mad. They were big mad. They appealed all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing this ISL theory, right, that state legislatures have the sole authority to draw maps and, and set other election-related rules. And in, uh, in early March, the Supreme Court um, issued an order that declined to uh, intervene in an emergency on an emergency basis um, with, you know, on this case. Um, so, you know, so they let the North Carolina state Supreme Court's decision stand. Um, but the conservative justices made it very, very clear that they were very, very interested in hearing this case, um, uh, you know, more fully. And, and now they've granted cert to hear the case. So, you know, this is a very, very important case that's now going to be before the Supreme Court. And if the court adopted this, you know, if they were to adopt this theory, it would radically expand the power of state legislatures and really give them carte blanche to engage in partisan gerrymandering and in, in 
engage in additional acts of voter suppression and even election subversion, really free from, from judicial review. And it could also shrink the power of state courts and state constitutions and even ballot initiatives. Um, uh, so, you know, this is a very important case. And I think it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, this this has huge this case will have huge implications for the 2024 election. Um, you know, we saw Trump's lawyers were trying to engage uh, state le Republican state legislators after the 2020 election, um, you know, to to sort of, you know, have them find the votes or, or you know, flip, jettison the, the, the state's chosen electors, uh, etc. Um, uh, and part of the problem, you know, we saw that in, in the, the January 6th hearings, but part of the problem was that the state legislatures in places like Arizona and Pennsylvania, they hadn't set out a, a process in advance to, you know, allow them to just simply select their own electors and this sort of thing. Um, and so this year we've seen a lot of states introducing bills, uh, I should say, uh, Republican controlled states introducing bills to expand the le state legislature's authority over election rules, right, to give them that uh, the, the patina of legal authority to do so. Um, and so even if, uh, you know, a couple states do pass those sorts of laws and the Supreme Court greenlights this theory in the Moore case, that could be a checkmate for the 2024 election. So um, it's an extremely dangerous um, uh, case. And there's certainly a reason to believe that there are enough votes on this Supreme Court to to uh, to support this theory. And again, I'm speaking with Gabby Goldstein, who's the co-founder and senior vice president for strategic initiatives at Sister District, whose mission is to build progressive power in state legislatures. And she has an article at Salon, Progressives Take the Fight to the States. It's the only way to win. Well, again, just quoting from the Washington Post editorial last Tuesday, should the Supreme Court buy into this radical doctrine, governors and other state and local officials responsible for running elections might end up with their hands tied. It could also create manifold opportunities for mischief of the sort then President Donald Trump and his allies attempted in 2020, referring, I guess, to the uh, these fake electors. But next time around, it's, it's a sort of repeat of what's going on now with Stop the Steal and what's being investigated by the January 6th committee, and it's looking more and more like the coup attempt that Trump organized and executed uh, on January the 6th almost succeeded. Now they've learned from their mistakes and they're going to get it right this time. Well, is the Supreme Court doing the same thing? Trump tried to, you know, stack these Republican legislatures with fake electors. It didn't work. But the Supreme Court's stepping in and making sure that it will work next time. That's the concern. That's the concern. And so, you know, I think there, it's very clear that four justices have expressed some level of support for this theory. Um, Alito, Gorsuch and Thomas are clear yeses. They, they're, it's quite clear that they support this theory. Kavanaugh, there's some question. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, he has certainly indicated uh, a strong interest in this theory. And, and I think uh, I think a little bit more than that. Um, I think Roberts is a strong maybe. Uh, his 
you know, he was the the dissenter in the 2015 Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, um, it, which was a stinging dissent that I think uh, opens the door for his support uh, here. And we don't know about Barrett. So, you know, I think that there's uh, the idea that we get to five uh, through some combination of this conservative supermajority uh, certainly does not seem unlikely. Um, and I think, you know, you're, you're right to point out that, uh, that, that even outside the court, there has been, you know, sort of an effort by Republicans um, covertly, but also overtly to norm normalize this sort of rhetoric, uh, build, you know, in intellectual credence for the idea of expanded state power. Um, and, uh, you know, we've we've certainly seen that with Republican legislatures and, and legislators using the big lie as a pretext right, for additional voting restrictions, installing partisan actors in, you know, in election administration positions, ordering, you know, expensive fraud and reports, relitigating the, the results, undermining, sowing seeds of mistrust in, in elections, uh, and certainly in the, in the 2020 election. And, you know, that serves to normalize um, uh, this sort of rhetoric. So, you know, I think that those are converging in this moment, and it's a very dangerous. Um, uh, it's of course a very dangerous time in our democracy for for Republicans to control most state legislatures, as as you correctly pointed out. And this case could, in fact, you know, and I'll say, I, I think the Brennan Center at NYU Law has done an excellent job of of covering this. And for your listeners who who might be interested, um, they have some great resources on on their website around uh, around developments related to ISL. Um, and you know, I was on a, a briefing that they held earlier um, uh, or late last week. And, you know, I think that the le legal scholars uh, think that, you know, this, the court may not, uh, you know, there, there are reasons to think that the court will not, um, you know, rule in favor of a very strong um, independent state legislature doctrine, right? Like they could issue a more limited uh, ruling on this. And so, you know, we don't know, but certainly we have seen this court um, be quite willing to f not only, f you know, sort of jettison, uh, destroy, eviscerate precedent, uh, but also rule make rulings that really call into question the court's credibility. So we really don't know what will happen, but um, but it's an extremely dangerous case that could go really, really sideways for, for us from, from a democracy perspective. Well, if you look at the recent record of the Supreme Court, the Roberts Court, I mean, it was Roberts after all that wrote the opinion in Shelby versus Holder where they took away Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, saying, oh, we don't need it anymore. We've healed the racial divides in, in these mostly southern states. Complete nonsense. Nobody, at the minute that Shelby versus Holder was overturned, Section 5, pre-clearing these states so that they couldn't do the kind of mischief that we're talking about, gerrymandering, etc., and excluding black voters, the minute that they have, the Supreme Court overturned it, these states did exactly what Section 5 of the Voting Rights previously had prevented them from doing. So there's one example. Then you have Citizens United, uh, which have been massively advantageous to the Republicans, and in particular allowing dark money, which has been the vehicle by which 
Leonard Leo and the Federalists have put these five of these six ultra-conservatives on the court through half a billion dollars of dark money that flowed into promoting Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett to the court. So there's just some examples. So at what point do we have to acknowledge and accept that the supermajority in the Supreme Court are political activists in robes and get over this idea that it's anything but that and then mobilize to do something about it because I take it that's what your organization is trying to do is to get people to start voting for state legislatures to change them from these radical Trumpster types into a more representative democratic state legislature Democratic small D and large D. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, these these Supreme Court decisions and frankly, the actions of Republican controlled legislatures sh- shouldn't shock anyone. I, you know, from a from a conservative jurisprudential perspective, the narrowing of federal civil civil rights protections, um, dismantling the regulatory state, um, those are really you know a culmination of a century of strategic power building on the right, and the expansion of state power is really at its core. Um, so while progressives have you know been over investing in federal strategies, federal legislation, federal advocacy, federal litigation, um, you know sometimes strategically, other times not. Right, the hundred and twenty million dollars that have already been raised by the end of April for unwinnable, you know, not not unwinnable because some of those Senate races are very, in very democratic uh, strongholds, but um, uh, non-competitive Senate races, 120 million already flowing into non-competitive Democratic Senate races. Um, uh, you know, so certainly there has been, while we have been over-investing in, you know, in at the federal level, conservatives have been consistent and and ruthless in their efforts to build power at both federal and state level. And we have really neglected state power. And I think that we're really in a moment of of state ascendancy um, where we're seeing, uh, you know, gridlock in Washington. Right. Uh, You know, the the federal uh, uh, legislature is is less productive than ever. Uh, And, you know, we have this arch conservative Supreme Court that really has a goal of narrowing federal protections and and enlarging state power. And, um, and, you know, coupled with broader regulatory shifts away from strong central uh, regulatory control, it's all converging, right? And and that's not accidental. You know, you mentioned the Federalist Society. Um, There is an entire political apparatus uh, that conservatives have spent generations building, um, designed specifically to stack the courts with ideological judges. They've focused on state legislative races for decades, um, knowing that these are really overlooked venues of power and that state legislatures are the key to redistricting and voting rights. Um you know, and that locus of Republican control really accelerated after 2010 when they engaged in a very successful uh, project called Red Map to take over state legislatures and and be um, and then have the ability to gerrymander maps in 2010. We're still feeling the reverberations of that now in the new round of redistricting and all the rest. Um, but while the right has woven state strategies into the you know fabric of its efforts, we haven't. 
right? We really haven't. Um, and, you know, I think that that goes back to progressives being wary of the idea of states' rights, you know, and federalism. Um, but I, I really love uh, uh, what um, Heather Gerken, who is the, the dean of the Yale Law School, she um, has, has always, you know, she's said several times that uh, uh, federalism has no partisan valence, as a concept, it's politically neutral. It's just that one party has used it as a political tool and one party hasn't. Um, it is time to turn all of that around, right? We, we, we have the opportunity to, uh, to rethink our um, aversion to state power, our reluctance to engage in state power building. Let's let's build state power. State power can be great. It can be uh, uh, liber liberatory, right? Like it can be a state legislatures and states can be, you know, sites for our liberation and, and for the progressive vision of the world that we want to see. So, um, yeah, absolutely. This is a great time for for folks to 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 make some room in their hearts for for states, certainly as a matter of political necessity given the precarious nature of our democracy and the, the extent to which its future will de depend on who controls our state legislatures, um, but also because we could build a progressive federalism and uh, and use our states as, as real laboratories for progressive policy. And certainly, I think you mentioned California as a great example there. So yes, that's what my organization is focused on. And uh, these midterms will be absolutely critical. Whoever we elect to state legislatures this year in 2022 will be in office during that critical post 2024 election period, right? This is our last chance before the, you know, the November to January period of 2024 uh, to, to, to change who, who is in power in these state legislatures and uh, elect pro-democracy candidates um, who can help us build towards the, the positive vision of, of the future that's, that's better when Democrats uh, control our states. Well, Gabby Goldstein, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Gabby Goldstein, who is the co-founder and senior vice president for strategic initiatives at Sister District, whose mission is to build progressive power in state legislatures. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine